We're trying to break the maximum warp barrier. Nothing in the universe can go warp 10. It's a theoretical impossibility. In principle, if you were ever to reach warp 10, you'd be traveling at infinite velocity. Infinite velocity? Got it, so that, that means very fast. It means that you would occupy every point in the universe simultaneously. In theory, you could go any place in the wink of an eye. Time and distance would have no meaning. If Voyager achieved warp 10, we could be home in as long as it takes to push a button. Welcome back to Delta Flyer. I'm Stuart Hollis. And I'm Thad Haight. This week, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 15, Threshold. Yeah, we've uh, come this far. We've crossed over. We can't stop now. In fact... We've gone so far that we need to bring someone else in for this episode, so we'd like to welcome back good friend of the show, Carl Wonders. Hey guys, how you doing? Well, Carl had to cement his lead as the person who has been on the show the most. Well, you know, the present and the past, they're both in the future, so here we are again. <laughs> I've also heard that he who controls the past now controls the future. <laughs> and I would like to say that... We should perhaps mention that we are talking about the Emmy-winning episode, Threshold. I'm assuming it won an Emmy for something other than, like, regular Emmy reasons? It was not for writing, if that's what you were wondering. <laughs> uh, writing, acting, like, supporting cast. It was for... It was for. It was probably for costuming, right? Outstanding makeup, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, fun fact, this is, this, is a, this is an interesting situation where one of the... An episode that's universally considered one of the worst episodes of Star Trek deservedly won an Emmy. Beat one of the an episode that is considered one of the best episodes of Star Trek for it, and deservedly so, because DS9's The Visitor was up for the same Emmy. Oh, that was just what make the old makeup for uh, Tony Todd. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, and old makeup is old makeup, right? The Visitor is a great episode. But it is, it is. <laughs> so it, it's it's an interesting distinction that a terrible episode be a good episode for an Emmy, and that was the right decision. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get too far into the meat of the episode, let me start with our synopsis from TV Guide. Oh yeah, let's probably do that. An experiment with Warp 10 results in Lieutenant Paris's death and rebirth as an amphibious creature that sabotages the ship and kidnaps Captain Janeway. Um... Yeah. I guess technically everything they said is true, but... Hey, you know what? I say we that, give it to them. <laughs> that's a very spoilery uh, synopsis, though, don't you think? I mean, for TV Guide. That's a good point. <laughs> their, their synopses do tend to like usually be, here's a synopsis for the first five minutes of the episode, and the punchline, effectively. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, it's just like, well, here's the like here's the whole thing, everything that happened. And just, you know, truncated, uh, two-sentence form. They left out a very important bit at the end, but... Memory Alpha does a better job of not completely giving away everything. A specially outfitted warp-capable shuttlecraft piloted by Tom Paris successfully reaches Warp 10, breaking the transwarp barrier. But the side effects of breaking the barrier may cost the crew of Voyager their best helmsman. Oh no, not Ensign Baytart! That's <laughs> <laughs> a shade there. I couldn't resist that. No. Uh, anyway, Stuart, when did this episode air? This episode originally aired on the 29th of January, 1996. Thad, who directed it? It was directed by Alexander Singer, uh, 
We talked about him when we talked about Tattoo. He's done six TNG, six DS9, and ten Voyager episodes. Uh, the story was by Michael DeLuca. This is his only Star Trek credit. He was the head of New Line Cinema at the time and had a Star Trek episode idea that he pitched. Uh, he's His other writing credits... He, do, he has not written much, but he did write the 1995 film Judge Dredd. Ooh. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, and he's better known as a producer. Uh, some of his notable producing credits are The Social Network, The Mask, and all three Fifty Shades films. Well, that's some range there. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, teleplay was by our old friend Brandon Braga. Okay. So our episode begins with Paris piloting a shuttle. He's zipping through different warp factors, engages the new engine, keeps pushing it. Things are going bad. He's getting some coaching from Bolana and, and, and Harry. Off the bat, I didn't completely recognize that this was a simulation mm-hmm. um, until it all fell apart. And then it's like, well, that guy killed off Paris in the first 30 seconds. Like, I don't remember much about the episode, but I know that he lasts longer than 30 seconds. <laughs> he does die, though. He does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we get a little bit of premonition there. Once uh, the simulation fails, he's just sitting on the ground, and Blonde is like, you're dead. So I've always, something I've always wondered about these holodeck simulations whenever, you know, something cataclysmic happens and, and the whole thing goes to the, you know, the, the yellow grid and TNG and the whatever they have here. But, like, does did Paris, like, fall the two feet from his chair? When I was wondering. In, in, the, in the shuttle onto, it, onto the ground? Or does it, like, gently lower you down? Because I've always wondered, you know, what... People will end up just suddenly standing in the middle of the empty holodeck or whatever. I've always wondered that. Just what happens when when this whole thing blows up? Because he doesn't seem like he fell. So he looks a little bit like he fell. Mm. You know, if you think that he's you know he's sitting in a chair, and if all of a sudden like the chair gets pulled out from under you, you're gonna you know you're gonna go down a little bit. Yeah. Um, like even if his feet were on the floor of the holodeck, I wonder what happens if someone is. Like let let's let, let's say someone's like walking up a hill on the hollow deck, <laughs> yeah, and then all of a sudden the you know the the simulation shuts down. Like, have you ever like thought there were thirteen steps, but there are actually twelve? I can just yeah. only like imagine that, but like a little bit worse. Yeah, yeah. Or even when they fall like in in water, um, you know, in the in the encounter at Farpoint when. Uh, Wesley falls into the pond or, or the stream or whatever it is, and it's like, is there? How do they do that with the floor? Is it everything raised up off the ground to be it? it I, I don't know. Holodecks just don't make sense sometimes. Uh, and how did just, the holographic just, just water leave the holodeck with Wesley? Or the snowball? Yeah. How do you make water with force fields? Hmm, that's a great question. Well, but if you can make lungs all... with force fields, you can make water with. That's force true. Fields. You can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, I was also thinking that an empty holodeck is an interesting allegory for heaven in, like, the, you know, Starfleet future. Hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering why they need a holodeck for this process at all. Can't they just run the computer simulation? Why do they need to be in a fake shuttle in the holodeck? Well, that that ties into a note that I have that's for later in the episode. I don't know if we want to jump around, but... And it's, it's something that's always stuck out to me a little bit is, um... There's the scene, like, after... And again, I'm jumping around, so I apologize. That's all right. The the there's the scene when, which actually is a, very, I, I think it's a really good scene when when Tom Paris dies in quotes, and 
And then, you know, he sent, the doctor sends Kess to bed or whatever. Um, and then they show him working in the dark. And I've always wondered, I like, wondered why, about that. why, why, and, and it's not the only time it happens, but like, does, can't the EMH work offline, like in the computer doing these analyses? Does, is it, does it have to be to the point now where it has to be anthropomorphized and be sitting at a desk, like clattering away on the computer or? And if he is sitting at a desk anthropomorphized, why is it in the dark? Yeah, exactly. Because it's night and it's creepy. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like like for some tests he might run, it would be necessary for him to be uh, corporeally present to yeah. like actually like pick up the vial and move it from one machine to the other. Or who knows what? But no, you're not wrong. Like for the most part, he could like he should be able to just like sit there in the background interacting with the computer directly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get that, you know, if you have Bob Picardo there, you want him to be doing something and get to act and all that. Um, it just always struck me as kind of inconsistent with the idea of what the EMH is and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So we have our failed simulation and our transwarp team retires to the mess hall to get some food and continue thinking about how they've screwed up and what they can do to not screw up again. Neelix comes along and offers his help on the problem. And I was reminded a little bit of the of the line from the first Avengers. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. <laughs> Except that Neelix couldn't answer last night. He's like, well, never, actually. But so, I mean, I, I, just, just for full disclosure, I actually volunteered for this episode uh, to Thad. And um, for a couple of reasons. One being that at the time, you know, I hadn't gone through my rewatch yet. And I just thought it would be fun because this was a fairly notorious episode. But... I'm actually kind of glad I did because um, I actually really like the beginning of this episode. Um, and in okay, fact, there's a, there, there's, a, there's a point that you can definitely point to that we'll get to where I think everything just goes off the rails. But I'm one of my favorite and one of my favorite films ever um, is the film The Right Stuff. Mm. It's a pretty excellent film. Yeah, the, yes. the Apollo astronauts and everything. But it actually has a the whole beginning of the film is all about chuck yeager and breaking the sound barrier and you can definitely tell they're trying to go for that vibe where they're you know test piloting and they're doing this you know something that's theoretically impossible because at the time everyone thought your ship would disintegrate when you hit mach one and even to the point of where i think i think it's jay chataway um he even kind of evokes some of the score that from that film a little bit in the the music he writes for when they actually do the 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 test flight and everything and this stuff I really like, all the, you know, sitting around and trying to, you know, figure out what's going on and, and how can we break this barrier, which that I don't quite understand, but we can get to that a little bit too. Um, but, and it, and it also gives an opportunity to have a table full of pads, which I know <laughs> you both love, but, uh, um, but yeah, it, it's, I, I do like this, this part. And then later on the earlier deterioration stuff, that's kind of a Cronenberg t- homage in a way or uh, yeah. pay on if you want to call it which depending on how well you like it but um the first you know the first 30 minutes or at least of the show are actually quite better than i remember them being and i think that they get credit for i would agree with that also brief yes. aside uh, i also love the right stuff and carl i know you've said that you have not seen all of enterprise is that correct i have not no have you seen the episode first flight no, but I've heard of it, and it's I. I'm currently doing a Voyager rewatch, and I'm 
about a third of the way through season six, and I'm planning on jumping right into Enterprise once I finish uh, Voyager. So hopefully I'll be able to get around to that and, uh, and you know, let people know what I think about it. But. Yeah, because that episode is, a very, is very reminiscent of the right stuff. Okay. But back to this episode. Yes, <laughs> I agree. I, I really enjoyed the beginning of this episode, too. It does sort of fall apart in the the belt two-thirds of the way through but mm-hmm. <laughs> there there's a lot of cool stuff in here yeah i also have lots of questions about why we completely abandon warp 10 from here but that's a whole other thing well and i read i think it was on i'm gonna pull a, a fad here i think it says on memory alpha uh that uh brennan braga had to pull out any explanation for why what happened to paris actually happened which i think kind of well, makes it make even less sense, obviously, but maybe there was something in there in the original draft that would explain, like, well, I guess we can't go to Warp 10 anymore. Um, and I get conf- I, I get very confused with this, you know, trans-warp threshold idea when, you know, we had trans-warp drive all the way back in Star Trek Three with the Excelsior, and they kind of got abandoned, and we don't really know why, because... You know, it did, and the Borg use transwarp. The Borg use transwarp. In fact, Voyager uses transwarp to get back to the Alpha Quadrant at the end of the show. Right, but that's not the everywhere at once kind. That's the really fast kind. So they're apparently two different things. Right, but then in the episode they kind of mix the everywhere at once kind with the very fast kind yes, because they do. it's you, everything they show like they show from third person perspective, like them in the shuttle or. At the end, when Chakotay's like, it took us three weeks to get to the planet that this shuttle made it to. It's like, that's... I think it was three days. Yeah, or three days or or whatever it was. But, you know, it's not, you know... Because if you're everywhere at once, I'm like, wow, they're really lucky that Paris showed up back right where they were twice. Mm. You know, when he could be anywhere in the the universe. Um, So, yeah. And my thoughts (laughs) on this, and I'm jumping forward as well, but whatever. Uh, the logs from the shuttle managed to, like, record every cubic centimeter of the sector. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Why not set, like, create warp 10 probes to map the galaxy? Ah. Well, we don't know how much... We don't see a ton of manual fiddling while Paris was doing the actual test flight, but certainly in the simulations, there was some fiddling he had to go through in order to hit like, even like the simulated success. Mm-hmm. So right. it it could be that unmanned is not feasible. Okay, why not do manned missions and then subject them to anti-protons as soon as they get back? Because mm. it mm. does work, yeah. Taking that one step further, why not go home and then subject the entire crew to antiprotons? Well, the thing I never got a sense from was, I mean, other than, you know, for script necessity purposes, um, how do they know where they're going to end up? Yeah, that was not explained uh, at all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, we could use this, to, we could use this to get back to the Alpha Quadrant. It's like, yeah, you could also end up somewhere in the Andromeda Galaxy for all you know. I mean, it's, it's yeah, if you're everywhere at one, and, and to go back to Thad's point about the, you know, mapping the galaxy with, because we have like every square centimeter of the of the sector. If you were everywhere in the galaxy, wouldn't you have like a little bit of every part of the universe, not just everything in that one sector? 
Well, my assumption on that was that uh-huh. they ran out of space on the shuttle. Because that would make no that that's actually makes sense, yeah. How did the shuttle know to prioritize the local sector? Well, that I don't know. But that was my because right before Paris starts having his allergic reaction to water, he's suggesting they they put a larger computer core in the shuttle. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. No, that makes sense. But jumping back before he has the allergic reaction to water, mm-hmm. but after the last time he was in the mess hall with Neelix, mm-hmm. they get a brilliant idea from Neelix that you know they were having trouble with the nacelles, as Paris put it, because he's a weirdo, <laughs> where they were tearing away from the ship. And he got the bright idea that perhaps the ship was actually tearing away from them. And how to reinforce them, etc. And they go through another simulation, and it is a success. So here's what I'm wondering. If the warp 10 threshold is a theoretical impossibility, how does the computer know how to simulate the stresses yeah. that the shuttle is going to endure as it approaches this theoretical impossibility? Yeah, that was something I wondered from the very first simulation, because they, and they do this all the time, where they do simulations of theoretical things that there's no way the computer would know anything about. Yeah. You know yeah. what what the answer would be, um, so yeah, I was I I kind of wondered the same thing. Actually. Did you did you ever see the movie Sunshine? Yes, it's for anyone who hasn't seen it. It is fabulous sci fi for the first. Oh man, like, that's a great parallel. <laughs> yeah, no, where where what going off the rails at the very end? Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like for about like well the first two thirds, and then we get like weird body horror and and everything else. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. What what I'm thinking of actually instead, at one point the like the main astrophysicist character on board is running through is showing someone the simulation of what they think will happen when they release the you know like all the fissile material into the sun to reboot it mm-hmm. and you know it's like it's charting the course and it's going it's going and going and then all of a sudden like, the whole screen gets corrupted it's like well now the speeds are far too great and the mass keeps increasing and the computers can't handle it anymore so we don't really know what's going to happen after this second but here's everything we know that's going to happen up until this second and that to me feels like a much more like realistic thing yeah because I, I feel like if the computer can simulate them hitting warp 10 then why had like why hadn't they like set a computer to work on tell us how to hit warp 10. <laughs> like, if the computer can simulate a scenario where they do it successfully, then, the, then they can, like, work backwards from there on how it achieved that result. Well, there's a long-standing tradition in Star Trek that the computer knows everything, and you just have to ask it in just the right way to figure out how to do something. Like Arthur Dent explaining to the computer how to make tea? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> make make the table metal. <laughs> <laughs> No, I like yeah. The Arthur Dent's a good one too. Yeah. Uh, the honestly, even just as bad as Schisms is the episode where Jordy is being turned into an alien. Oh yes, when they remove the shadows and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, or or even like in um in 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 another great episode in in duet when they're like rotate this photo so we can look at the picture of Goldar Heel based on this like tiny little pixelated thing in the background <laughs> so it, it's it's basically a csi computer i guess that you know they borrowed enhance enhance yes uh, <laughs> and if if we're going to talk if we're going to talk computers for a second um i know both of you have your little pet peeves that, that, that run across the this the series and one of the ones that's always bugged me and i don't know if either of you feel the same way is 
the inability to distinguish the terms download and upload. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> Where they're always like, I just downloaded the logs into the computer. It's like, no, you uploaded them to the computer. It, I don't know why it just... They just use download for everything. Also, why did they have to, like, set up that transfer? Why didn't that just happen automatically <laughs> when the shuttle landed in the shuttle bay? I mean, it's it's 1996, so wireless networking was still in its super-duper infancy. Yeah. So they probably just didn't, like, occur to them the idea of, like, the shuttle parks, and it, esta- it reestablishes its connection to the Voyager wireless network, which is obviously how all the pads work. Except, no, yeah. maybe they don't, which is why I'll no, have to carry if, eight of them. If, if they did, <laughs> they wouldn't need so many, yes. The idea, like, the idea of Harry, Paris, and Bellana having, like, four or five pads on the table, that actually makes sense to me. Like, each of them would have their own individual one, and then they would oh, yeah. have, like... Yeah, 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 that, yeah, definitely. It's when Janeway has 12 on her desk. Yes, that that yeah. is when it gets too ridiculous. Like, no, no, just give her, like, one bigger pad. Mega pad, <laughs> king of pads. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Pad Pro. Nice. <laughs> so, Tom Paris simulates breaking the theoretical warp 10 barrier, and everyone gives him an actual pat on the back, yep. and then a theoretical future pat on the back, when he will be listed in the same breadth as Orville Wright, Zephyrin Cochran... Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong, I feel like, is the wrong name yeah, for that Yeah, they list. should have had Chuck Yeager in there. Yeah. I mean, they, they really missed the chance, you know? <laughs> and th- and that's why I blink, because it's like, no, it's not Chuck Yeager, even though it should be. Like, it should be yeah, first yeah. flight, first warp, four, uh, you know, first Bach. Yeah, like, and if you're going to go with someone who went into space, don't go with the first man who stepped on the moon, because that's not an achievement in flight. Uh, go with Yuri Gagarin. I mean, the first right. person in space. Yeah. Yeah, like, make up an imaginary person to be the first person who, like, I, I don't know, like, traveled outside the solar system or something. So, like, for half a second, I was going to respond, yeah, they didn't come up with an imaginary person on this. I'm like, wait, no, Zephyrin Cockett's not real. <laughs> <laughs> but within the context of the show, it's like, it, it's... That at least is a through line. They didn't come up with a brand new throwaway name that would never get mentioned again. Right. That's true. Yeah, and no, at this point in early two, in early 96, yeah, they already knew that Zephyrin Cochran was going to be in First Contact because the film would have been mostly shot by now, or at least significant parts of it would have been shot by now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Evidence that apparently the Star Trek movies and Star Trek shows had a little bit more crosstalk than the Marvel movies and Marvel shows. Mm. That said, Zephyrm Cochran was established already, but I'm sure Braga thought of it because of First Contact. Because he was writing First Contact? Same yes! Time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they so they all give Paris his tentative like, future round of applause. He's back in his quarters down and do whatever he does in his quarters wearing his, you know, regulation blue bathrobe yep we are back to blue yes well i'm wondering if the maquis are the ones that have red well no because janeway always wears red oh but yeah or those weird nightgown things that she wears yeah so we talked about this in a recent episode it's either red or blue yep no i just listened to that one because uh stamets and culver wear blue pajamas in discovery so i mean red red. they wear Red, red pajamas in discovery yep yeah, and I was just watching a little bit of Enterprise, and T'Pol is definitely wearing blue pajamas. Oh, well, they wear blue everything. Is yes. Yes, which, yeah, which we had also yeah. discussed before. <laughs> but, yeah. 
So Janeway comes in. She just had a discussion with the doctor who recommends that Paris not sh- uh, pilot the, the test shuttle, and instead it should be Harry Kim. Paris has some sort of like metabolic imbalance or something. I can't remember what it was. Enzymatic oh. imbalance, I believe. He says you have a slight enzymatic imbalance in your cerebellum. And that there's a, like, I think, I think it was a 2% chance that he could be, like, put unconscious or, like, adverse effects would happen. And the doctor can't be sure what would happen. And we get back to... How can you be sure what would happen to anyone? Exactly. How do you predict what happens when you break a theoretical impossibility? Like... Right. I I, I mean, you know, like, they, they people used to assume that if you went faster than 30 miles per hour, your body would explode. Like... Uh-huh. <laughs> Also, why is Harry Kim next on the list? Why not Ensign Baytart? Well, he's on the project, I guess. I mean, mm, okay, but he's not like. I mean, that's the only that's the only thing that makes sense to me is that he, he you know, it would it would be either Harry Kim or Balana. Um, yeah, and I mean, they're academy trained, so they obviously know how to fly a shuttle. And you know, Carl makes a good point. He's on the project, so he's more familiar with any of the little things they've come across so far, and that could give him like that split second edge of okay. reaction time and prediction in order to deal with any issues that come up. So, uh, Paris makes an impassioned speech and convinces Janeway to let him fly. Uh, yes, because all the time he was growing up and getting all these particip- tr- participation trophies and all of his grade school teachers telling him that he's the best, he started to believe it. And then he grew up and realized, well, maybe I'm not the best. But he wants to be the best. Right, as no one ever was. Mm. I probably mangled that. I don't watch Pokemon. <laughs> Paris gets ready and gets into the shuttle, and we didn't really get a chance to discuss this very much at all last episode. But we have a new shuttle. Well, I was going oh, I was gonna get to that later. But we have a we have a Kazon sympathizer on board Voyager. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do. We didn't talk about Jonas at all last week. We talked about Hogan a couple times, but we didn't mention Jonas at all. And what I was gonna bring up last time, and I'll bring up now, is that that actor whose name I forgot to write down. Raphael Sabarge. Raphael Sabarge. Uh, yes, that's the name that I should have written down. He was in Independence Day. He was... Like, yes, he uh, was. Like, yeah, the moment that sticks out in my head is towards the very, very end when uh, Randy Quaid is flying his, his plane to crash into the ship, and he's like, okay, okay, I want everybody to cover this guy. Like, Oh, that guy. Uh, yes. Okay, yeah. You know who else was at Independence Day? Brent Spiner. Yes, he, yes was. he was. As Dr. Oaken. Mm-hmm. But only one of them were in the sequel. Brent Spiner yes. was, in fact, in the sequel. Yes. I'm <sighs> sad that I saw the sequel. Like, I was going to go through, like, a whole thing of, like, how to connect uh, this guy back to Voyager all over again, like, from Independence Day, and then I remember that Brent Spiner was in it, and then there you go. Plus, um, Tim Russ was in Generations. Yes, he was. And this relates to what? Well, again, we get Brent Spiner. Oh, okay. So, like, if that, like, I'm just saying, like, if that one connection wasn't enough. So, I'm looking at Raphael Sparge, or Sparge, or I do not know how to pronounce his last name, but I'm looking at his... Sabaro with a G. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce that either. (laughs) Uh, Okay. I'm looking at his IMDb page, and dang, the guy has been in everything. Uh, But... What's standing out to me is there was a Starship Troopers TV show, and he was in it. Wow. I wonder if it was better or worse than Starship Troopers 2 or 3. It couldn't have been worse. (laughs) 2 was very bad. 
It lasted for one season. Okay. Roughnecks, the Starship Troopers Chronicles. Okay. So Paris heads off to Shuttle Bay 2 so that he can attempt the warp flight. And it is a, it is a success. Warp 10. Yeah. Yep. And then he promptly disappears from their sensors because now he's everywhere and nowhere. But not like immediately. No, 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 no. He's No. Like he's still in contact for like four, like 5 or 10 seconds or something and then yeah. Which I thought was strange. Like you'd think that it would be the the instant he went to warp 10 he would have disappeared. Well, maybe even with subspace communications there's some amount of time lag, but you hear him talking about how he's at warp 10. But he's not answering their questions. Mhm. So, like in a scenario like this, you talk through everything. So he's just he's providing like data for the log effectively. Like he doesn't even know if like the message is going through and that doesn't matter. He's like you 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 just keep talking. Uh it's the same thing like with um like when when he and Neelix crash the ship on um parturition. Mhm. Mhm. And he's like talking through all of the steps that he's doing. Like you just keep talking. So it's possible that he had already disappeared and it just took and since he was so far away from the ship at this point, that's like the time it took for the subspace signal to get back to Voyager. And he had obviously already disappeared. And that was just the last of his log that they could capture. Right. But how could they capture anything after he hit warp 10? Hmm. That's what I'm saying. Ah. The, set, the, the instant he hit warp 10, they shouldn't, even if it there was a lag, <laughs> oh, so you're saying, it, so, yeah, so, so you're saying yeah. it should have been like, oh, oh you know, it's like, you know, there it is, warp two. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you know what? That does make more sense. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm on the same page as you now. Okay, and then like 30 seconds later, poof, he's back. Yep. And it does look like a new shuttle. Like I'm not, like I wasn't going crazy. That's a new shuttle. It is a new shuttle. It's the class two shuttle. Well, they had to replace the two or three they've lost already. And. It makes sense in this instance that it would be a new shuttle because they had to build this new shuttle to do warp 10. So I'm actually not begrudging them this new shuttle. Mm -mm. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) This new shuttle. (laughs) I think that, like, their sensors are showing that he's unconscious, though, when he comes back out of warp. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love... Uh, <laughs> they bring him onto the ship, and yep. the doctor's giving a report to Janeway, and she asks, can you wake him? Yes. <laughs> he leans over, he's like, wake up, this Lieutenant! The, that was amazing. Such a great doctor moment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, I also liked a little bit after that when it's, uh... I have some tests I'd like to run on your majesty before I release you back into the realm of ordinary humans. You may... Proceed. You may proceed. Yes. <laughs> and his other line that I liked was when he said, well, I'm glad you had a good time. Yes, <laughs> that was good, too. Yes. Robert Ricardo was on point this episode. Yeah, he absolutely is. He's, oh, yeah. He's almost never not on point. It's, That's true. It's very consistently good. Uh, the other good one was, uh, what did he eat? Just some of Neelix's coffee. I'm surprised he's still alive. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think shortly after this, we find out about the fact that the shuttle logs contain sensor data on every cubic centimeter of the sector, mm-hmm. a total of 500 billion gigaquads. You know, there are other metric prefixes so that you don't have to go with that high of a number. 
Well, it sounds better than like two exaquads or something, you know, or whatever it would work out to be. Off the top of my head, I don't know, but I have to count the zeros. But I think it would be five hundred exaquads. Okay, that still sounds impressive, actually. Or half a yachtaquad. Well, that doesn't sound like much, but they do that all the time because they're also they're also always talking about how many thousands of kilometers things are from. Yes. Yeah, and the in '96. Giga was definitely in the public zeitgeist, mm-hmm. but I don't think. Oh yeah, but but I don't think Terra was. No, no. Hard drives were still measured in single in single digit gigabytes at this point. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, unless you had all the money, you could be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. ten gigabyte hard drive. Well, only cost me twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Back when Word came on fifty eight floppies. <laughs> So, yeah, so we're back in the mess hall with Bellana. Parison, Parison and um, and she are, are talking about running the next simulation. Neelix comes along and says that he's made up a new coffee blend, and he's named it after Paris. It's Paris's delight. Paris has some, and it is not a yeah, delight. He is not, he is not impressed. No, 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 he, no. And then he and then he collapses, and after he collapses, we immediately see a rash on his face, which was not there before he collapsed. And I'm just thinking, dang, that rash showed up fast. Yeah, it almost looked like he, it almost looked like he had like a hemorrhage on his. Also, there was no liquid in those coffee cups. Well, no. But Bellana does call out to transporter room two. No, it was three, wasn't it? It wasn't it three that time. There's one time when they call out to transporter room three, and I. Towards the end, noticed it. Oh, it's towards the end. Okay. Yes, it was okay. shuttle bay two, though. It was it, yeah, shuttle bay two, transporter room two, and then later it's transporter room three. I don't think we knew there was a third transporter room yet until this episode. I I chalked that up to Brandon Braga writing generate or writing first contact when they always use transporter room three on TNG. But I could I could be wrong. I don't know. He just reverted back to his uh, yeah O'Brien's lucky number three. Yeah, huh. yeah. as good a reason as any. Yeah, so they can't beam him because they're not able to lock onto him. So they send a medical team, and this is interesting because we'd been led to believe that there was no medical staff other than the doctor and Kess, yet there's two guys in blue shoulders that lay Paris down on the bed. And give him some nasty looks, too, I thought. Yes. They're just not impressed with him at all. So are these, like, medical crewmen that we don't know anything about, or what's up with that? Uh, I mean, it could be that maybe, like, on their off days, like, maybe they maybe they do, like, a split shift, where, like, you know, like, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they're in the engine room, and Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, they're medical crew or something like that. They, you know, have, they don't have anyone to spare that could be full-time medical staff, which is why Kess is in there. Well, and they're very odd medical staff. Like, they, all they do is carry him in and then leave him and they actually leave the sick bay and and to, to your point you know that they could be you know in a different department um i'm thinking that could it would have been a prime opportunity to bring back walter baxter because we know he's strong enough to carry tom paris he's probably injured himself no well but he's he works out so much that you know he would be able to do that it, it's a long way from cargo bay to to um Neelix's mess hall. Besides, so. we lost Walter Baxter when there was the hull region cargo bay too. Oh, probably. Although at first, the 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 cold of space, he just thought he was working he out. He was working hard. out too hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's actually still holding on to the outside of the ship. That's how strong his grip strength is. <laughs> <laughs> so 
here's what I don't, and and we're I'm going to kind of expand a little bit on this. Is you know, Tom Paris has his allergic reaction to the water. Yes, mm-hmm. and and then you know he suddenly can't breathe air, and he has mm-hmm. to have the nitrogen and acid dichloride, which I guess is a thing, but isn't isn't really, really a, thing. a thing. Yeah, and this is what I don't get. This is where it starts to kind of fall apart for me as a as an episode because I just feel like they were. Oh, that'll be weird if we do that, and it'll be weird if we do that because then Tom Paris dies, and after he dies, he get he's like, oh, I can breathe the air again, and I guess the water clearly isn't a problem because of the end when the little lizards go off into the water. I was but, wondering that, but you know now um, he has two hearts and he starts growing weird organs. You know, so it's like it, I feel like they cobbled this together from a whole bunch of like what kind of weird stuff can we throw in one episode? Yes, because. Um, as I mentioned earlier, like I actually really, I think that the the scene of him dying is pretty well done, and I think that mm-hmm. you know Robbie McNeil does a good job with the material, mm-hmm. and you, you learn a bit about him, like with his dad and all that stuff, and it, it starts to get a little crazy when he starts yelling out for pizza and stuff. Pepperoni, God, I'd love a pepperoni pizza with Kavarian olives right now. I'm starving. But um, dying Paris is best Paris. <laughs> oh, what? I stand by it. <laughs> And then the other thing that I wrote down that's similar to the download and upload thing is um, I swear that the neural stimulator is the least effective device that Starfleet has ever invented because I don't know of a time that it actually (laughs) does anything except make you jump off the bed a couple times before they pronounce you dead. Well, it's like the paddles in a medical drama. Sure, but those, those actually work sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. You know, when they don't need the doctor to keep doing the, doing them over and over again until, you know, someone pulls them off the patient. No, no. They're gone. <laughs> <laughs> don't you yeah. quit on me, Paris. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the him coming back to life and having two hearts afterwards makes a lot of sense. He's clearly a time lord. And That's he just what, regenerated. That was my thought, huh? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how he was able to be in every place at one time. Wibbly wobbly. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the shuttle Cochrane is a TARDIS. Yeah, mm-hmm. that works. You know, the two hearts. I'm like, yeah, definitely Tom Paris, Time Lord, Time Lord. Yeah. We cut to the crooked crewman <laughs> informing the Kazon of the warp ten success. I'm looking forward to this guy getting his comeuppance in a few episodes. Because I know he doesn't go on for too much longer. His uppance will come. His, his, like, yes. I, I know that it must. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, is what I'm saying. I mean, it's going to be a bit, but it will happen. Yeah. And I think that, I, you know, this Raphael Sabarge, or however you say it, like, I think he's a good cast casting for that, because he has the ability to look slimy, but also can look like a member of the team when it's called upon, because he mm-hmm. does stuff like in engineering and doesn't seem like anything's off with him. Um, and then he does a good job of, you know, looking suspicious when he needs to look suspicious. So I think that it was a, a good job of picking an actor that could, could do both. The, the thing that I don't get is, you know, he's, he's filling them in, filling in the case on, on, on various things going on in Voyager. And I, I feel like this is just another one of those. We have to remember, we have to remind everybody that this guy's on the ship because this is before they did a lot of serial TV, but like, how do the Kazon know that warp 10 is a thing? Yeah, why do they measure warp in the same way? Well, yeah, it's like it's like if... Well, presumably um, the Universal Translator translates into whatever the Kazon name for oh, it Oh, sure, be. sure. No, that that I get. But 
the fact that the warp 10 is a barrier that is theoretically impossible to get beyond, and that's like the magic number. Where where would that come from? Like, especially when you think about the Kazon, who didn't even develop their own warp technology. They just fly around the right. ships, and they, pro- and they have, like, enough learned skills to be able to repair them, I assume. Mm-hmm. But, like, they probably... You know, you know we... We run into this on Stargate Weekly a fair amount, where we have the Gould, who are this technologically advanced civilization, but it seems like they developed this technology, and then they just stopped. They just stopped developing technology, they stopped like experimenting, they stopped doing science-y things, mm-hmm. at least for the first like six or so years of the show. We don't ever see any sort of like scient- uh, scientific inquiry out of the Gould on Stargate, and That's we see true. the same thing here where it's like nothing we've seen so far from the from the Kazon. Oh, no we do. When? Tell me. Have we seen it? Yeah. Okay, Cassandra's what was it? Planet. I missed it. That was a oh, scientific oh, experiment. Okay. I meant the I'm on the Kazon again. Oh, I thought you were talking about oh. the ghoul. <laughs> I was done talking about the ghoul. I'm talking about the Kazon. Oh. No, but it's the Kazon nerd sect that we don't talk about. There is the Kazon nerd sect somewhere, yes. <laughs> oh, the Kazon nerd sect, that's right, yep, yep. <laughs> the Kazon nerd sect are totally working on Warp 10. They'll, they'll, they'll crack it any day now. Yeah, forget that, they're going straight to Warp 11. If you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to 11. And now, mm. thanks to thanks to Michael Jonas, what I also want to know is, are there a lot of Kazon Nistrum lizards running around now? Oh yes! Like, like I'm he's, he's basically like here's here's the key to warp ten, and you know how many of them tried that, and what happened to them? It'd be kind of cool if we saw like Kazon ships pop out of nowhere, attack Voyager, and then just stop because the the pilots turned into lizards. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a fun little throwaway thing if it, if they encounter one in like season five, season six, or something. Yeah. yeah. When they're, you know, obviously, like, well out of Kazon space at this point. God, I hope. And the Kazon ship pops out of nowhere, and it's a lizard on board. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, the show's been made at this point, so it's not like we're talking about a show that, like, just aired last week or anything. And they would never have done that because of how poorly maligned this episode is. And I honestly, I, I do say poorly maligned, because, like... Yeah. It's not terrible. <laughs> I would rather watch this the next post facto. Yes. yes. Yeah. Like and like they're trying a bunch of really out there things, and I give them credit for at least trying stuff. And again, like you know, up until we're almost to the point now where he th- basically pulls out his tongue. I, I think it's it's still <laughs> and it's there's still the doing, doing well. And even up until the end of like it's basically just Act Five, I think, where it completely falls apart. Yeah. Yeah, like, like basically, like, up until he abducts Janeway, yeah, it's yeah. like I'm on board for all right. of this. Like, 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 let's just keep going. Like, I'm not crazy about Cronenberg and body horror, but okay, fine. I'm on, like, I'm on board for this ride. Yeah. And then, yeah, so you know, we'll we'll you know, like, kind of fast forward a little bit because um, we are going a little long on time. <laughs> but yeah, so he comes back. He comes back to life. He's decaying at an accelerated rate. He tears his tongue out. He, we have a conversation between him and Janeway. Like, ah, oh, pretty disgusting, huh? It's like, no, no, super gross, actually, Tom. But, you know, no, no, I have nothing good to say. You're super gross. Mm-hmm. He latches out at, at at Janeway, realizes he did, apologizes, and then lashes out again. Yep. Uh, he keeps getting worse. Yep. And the doctor comes with the bright idea that if we, if we destroy all of the mutant DNA, 
then his body will be forced to re- you know go back to its original DNA to rebuild yeah, itself. Yeah, I mean, so uh, people, I'm not sure how... listeners, listeners probably don't know this. Some of them might, but like, I actually have a science background, so this stuff just is like that's not how DNA works. Like, you can't eradicate DNA and expect it to come back. And like when when they did uh, Genesis, um, they invented a or no was it no no I'm sorry it was Rascals where they invented RVN as a completely made up thing that they could just uh, kind of go back to and and kind of hand wave away but the idea like that we just get rid of this mutated DNA and there's a template left like the template is the DNA so. That's just me. That's me, uh, yeah, me, like, me not it, being able to overcome some scientific hand waving, I guess. But well, and there's also this fact that it's like there's only so much that the body is able to repair, right? Anyway, so like e- even if this was on solid ground, mm-hmm. that they could somehow magically only destroy the mutated bits. And I mean, you know, it's the future. Mm-hmm. They, I am sure, have cured, like you know, solved the cancer problem at this point. So they probably have ways of dealing with mutating DNA and eradicating only the mutated DNA, but like skin grows back and bones can heal, but like lungs don't really heal. Nope. Kidneys only a little bit like the liver's great, but like the spinal column that like (laughs) there's a lot of like there's a lot in the body. Depending on which episode of Star Trek you're watching, they've done neural regeneration i'm watching this one no, no, which one are well, you watching i mean <laughs> you know the one where dr mccoy says we can't do anything with the brain and then the one where he reattaches spock's brain completely um but uh yeah i mean the 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 regeneration thing is an issue um and the fact that you know this stuff happens like over the course of a day almost um oh yeah i, I i'm not gonna nitpick too much at star trek and it, yeah <laughs> no no it's fine so but uh, you're on our show. Nick picking as well. Well, yes. Mm, I'm not going to nitpick sure. too much. The doctor has the brilliant idea that you know, we bombard his body with anti-protons and they quickly put together this anti-proton pod thing in the engine room to put Sala, like Salamander Tom Paris into. And it, uh, the, the work in it, he escapes from the pod and goes on a rampage. And there's the part that the synopsis gave us where he sabotaged the ship. We don't know if it was inadvertent or not, but the end result was the same. The ship is crippled now. Man, there was a lot of phaser fire trying to subdue him, too. Oh, yeah. Like, was he, like, surprisingly faster than they were expecting? Maybe? Like, like maybe he had, like, above-average speed because of his new salamanderiness. <laughs> I don't know, man. Maybe. That's possible. And he makes a beeline for Janeway... Because, like, if if his goal was to grab, like, a female, Balana was in the room. Maybe he didn't make a beeline for Janeway. Maybe he just happened to come upon Janeway. And he knocks her out really easy. Like, he just, like, charges into her and, like, poof, she's out. He does, like, that chest yeah. slam thing that it just... I don't know if the stunt might have maybe not gone as planned or something, but, yeah, it did look... Uh, yeah, like, it, it didn't seem like a very, like, super-duper forceful hit. And even if, like, and I can understand her hitting the ground, but like she hit the ground and it was unconscious for however long it took her to pick her up and take her to Shuttle Bay Two. So, yeah. And now is when now's when the episode goes bad. <laughs> yes, yes. <sighs> I'll let you talk about it some, Thad. Oh, uh, must I? 
Um, okay, so Paris takes Janeway to the shuttle. They fly away. They go. They manage to outrun Voyager because they go to warp ten. And then we cut to three days later. Voyager has managed to track down the shuttle. I'm still wondering how. Well, I'm wondering how it is that Harry was like, I think I found the shuttle. Let me give you its exact location. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how were they able to track the shuttle at all? They probably found it when it came out of Transwarp or whatever. Uh, I guess they just, like, followed sure. on the same course they were on and hoped for the best. Well, because you would, you would think that if you're doing a test flight with a special shuttle that is designed to go faster than you've ever gone before, you'd have some sort of homing beacon on it. In case it went haywire and you kind of disappeared, which is what you I mean. At least, at least I would think that that would be a logical assumption that they would put some way of tracking the thing. So maybe, maybe that's how I don't know, like a subspace beacon of some kind on it. And for the reason why he still ended up in the Delta Quadrant, I have to. My supposition is that his now well fully lizard brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. (laughs) Still still had an attachment to Voyager and the Delta Quadrant, and maybe like on some way wanted to be found when it when he like like because before he had pulled like he he was everywhere all at once and so he was aware of the fact that the Voyager crew was looking for him the first time around, so we so he turned off Mm -hmm. warp ten and and the ship came back to where it, where he started from. Mm-hmm. So on some level, he probably wanted to be found, but not right away. Well, now he's got to make babies first. Well, you know, it, sometimes it's the female of the species that initiates mating, Thad. That's true. So anyway, yes, they tracked down the shuttle, they beam down to the planet, and we meet two giant salamanders. With, with mustaches. Yes. But which one's the captain? The female, obviously. Thank you, Tuvok. And they just leave the lizard babies on the planet? Are they able to fend for themselves? We don't know. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it's something that's best left alone. Who knows if the anti-proton treatment would have any effect on them other than, say, killing them? Well, no, they would just keep them as their pet lizards. (laughs) Right, that's exactly what they want. Like a constant reminder at all times of (laughs) that wacky thing that happened to them. I'm just saying those poor those poor abandoned lizard babies. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, that effect was done. Um, the the lizard babies were CGI, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the water was. They made the splashes in the water by using a black sock because <laughs> they were able to just cover up the sock with the CGI. Okay. Like basically, like right up until Paris carries Jamie onto the shuttle, I was on like I was fully on board with this episode. And, and, like, ready to see what was going to happen next. Even though I knew what was going to happen next. <laughs> it's hard to forget was, what happens next. If there's one thing you remembered about this episode from way back when, it was the end. Uh, yes. I, I, I just, I, I have to think that they kind of ran out of time. Like, they had so much going on in this episode up until the end. And then it's, oh, we have, oh, shoot, we have eight minutes left. Uh, yeah, like, I wonder if maybe they were, like... Can we also blame this on Brandon Braga spending too much time writing First Contact? Possibly. Yes. Yeah. I didn't have enough time for breakfast this morning. I can, I'm happy to blame that on Brandon Braga spending too much time on writing First Contact. He he, <laughs> he did also write Sub Rosa, so... That's true, he did. And, and other... And some quite good episodes, too, I should point out. 
he actually wrote a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> so earlier this year, Thad and I went to a little Star Trek convention here in Atlanta called Treklanta, and the the headlining guest there was Robin McNeil. Mm-hmm. Someone, of course, asked him about Threshold, and he had said that, like, from his perspective as an actor, he thought it was the best episode ever because, like, all the focus is on him. He had a lot of lines. He got to like he got to be up in the makeup and do like weird, gross things. So, like, from his perspective, it was awesome. <laughs> but he understands why a lot of fans don't like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was he was a lot of fun to listen to. He I he bet. had a great yes. panel. I mean, yeah, I think there is a, there's a lot of good Paris material in this in the episode. Um, mm-hmm. I I do roll my eyes at the at the last scene when he's like, "I guess I have a few more barriers to break to build my self esteem," kind of thing. It's like, ugh, really? But other than that, like little hammy bit at the end, I I think he does. He has a lot to to a lot going for him in this, and uh, you know, again, he's able to act pretty well through all that makeup, which is not easy to do, I would imagine. Uh, he said he loved the makeup yeah. too. Yeah. Well, I think that like, the only last thing that I, that I that had kind of stuck out to me was when they were chasing the ship. When they're chasing the shuttle the second time around, and they're trying desperately to keep up, and the computer warns them that if they they've hit maximum velocity, and the ship will like explode in forty five seconds. Mm-hmm. So apparently, Voyager has a top speed of nine point nine five. Which just means that it's like, that's how fast we could get it in test runs before the ship tore itself to pieces. Don't ever actually yeah, go that's 9.95. What, yeah, that's what I was thinking, because they're on, like 9.7, they're like, we need to slow down. I'm like, wait a second. Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I thought it was like, like, I thought it was supposed to be like maximum sustained warp of 9.95, and it, like, I feel like 45 seconds, like, while the ship is trying to tear itself to pieces, is not sustained. It's like the one time I tried to take my Saturn past 85 miles per hour. <laughs> A little wobbly? Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, Voyager's been through a lot since it rolled off the assembly line, too, so maybe that has something Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. did either of you have uh, any last uh, thoughts on this one? Uh, Kate Mulgrew says this episode is the one that made her the most uncomfortable. Because of having lizard babies with Tom Paris? I think. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, I would think the, the one where she murders Tuvok, I mean, not Tuvok, Tuvix, mm. should make her more uncomfortable, but, you know, what do I know? <laughs> not murder. Uh... How about you, Carl? Any last thoughts? Um, the only other note that I have that really isn't much of a thought is that I think this episode might win the award for most times the episode name is said in the episode. Because they kept saying, they, <laughs> they said threshold a lot. In the episode. Oh, yeah. And they said yeah. it really early on, <laughs> yeah. too. He's, he's crossing the threshold. Ding. Uh, but uh, yeah. I do enjoy this episode. Yeah. And in a perverse way, I even, like, love to hate the end. Uh, <laughs> and actually... Um, uh, the Trek Ranks podcast just did their Voyager Guilty Pleasures last week, uh-huh. and I su- submitted my picks to them on, uh, and Threshold was actually my number one Voyager Guilty Pleasure. Somehow mine didn't get out, but it was also the same. Uh, I picked it as number one. It's it's up there kind of like, it's like a Spock's brain, I think, of Voyager. Oh, it's you know, absolutely, it's yes. Just, it is, you just kind of embrace the, the not-so-good aspects of it and enjoy it, because at the end of the day, it's... It's not boring, and it's not. It, yeah. it, it's it, the Spock's I, and, brain and or the move the, along home and, voice. Yeah, it, yeah, or yeah, move along home is another good example. I actually really like that one too. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not even like a Tuvix where it makes me angry at the end because it's such a bad way of resolving the story. Um, 
At least yeah. that's that's my take on Tuvix anyway. But um, I would agree with you. I would I would watch this over Tuvix just because of the the way Tuvix makes me feel at the end. And I would watch this over Ex Post Facto because Ex Post Facto is awful. Well, like, that one combines the worst of uh, Matter of Perspective and Aquiel, where it's a <laughs> yes. it's a bad Rashomon ripoff, and the dog did it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Stuart, do you have any last thoughts? I already gave you my last thoughts. Okay. So I think, but it definitely sounds like we can all agree that the first, like, 35 minutes and the final eight minutes just don't really meld together. Nice. Nice. To make a solid full episode. Nice. Nice segue. Yeah. So next week, we'll be talking about meld. Thanks for listening this week. If you enjoyed this, you should also check out our other podcast, Stargate Weekly. You can find in review both on your podcast player of choice and you can also reach us at our email address deltaflyerpod at gmail.com i'm at gamicus on twitter i'm at tyrannicus on twitter and i'm at listening to film on twitter and you can follow our show on twitter at delta flyer pod and that's our show yeah stopping